Hello, and welcome to Talkie Talk, the podcast for the media by us. My name is Brent. I have an Echo. I also have a TJ. Hi. And a Chris. Hello. The Echo I shall call David. I'm Mr. Echo. <laughs> oh, you're my favorite part. Um, oh, we're going to be Brent? talking about homework from a while ago. 2000. <laughs> about a month ago. 19. Yeah. Uh, the Last Emperor, 1987 movie that won Best Picture. Uh, got to all cross it off our best picture list. And, uh, yeah, so who assigned this? I did. Cool. Yeah, I did. I was thinking about who has homework at the end of this. We did not talk about this in our pre-show production. Oh, yeah. Whoops. We'll figure it out as we go. So there might be some weird silence pauses. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I'm going to do a brief rundown of the plot. It's a pretty simple plot. Um, but it, the, the movie basically tells the story about the emperor in Japan. Not Japan. Jesus. Jesus. I mean, um, he, he was an emperor for Japan for a yeah. minute. <laughs> um, but the the titular last emperor of uh, China, living in the Forbidden City, in the palace there. Um, it's, uh, you know, about his life from selection to be the next emperor up until uh, he's an old man now exiled from the palace after the empire has been dissolved for the communist state of China. Um, but it follows him through from as a toddler when the current uh, when the current empress uh, Qi Ji uh, tells Puyi that he's going to be the emperor um, basically as she's dying, um, and then follows him through adolescence and his attachment to his wet nurse slash girlfriend slash mom. Um, and her uh, inevitable banishment uh, after the other royal ladies living in the Forbidden City kind of deem that she needs to go. Um, and it's at this time when he's reached a like hypothetical sexual maturity for an emperor at the ripe age of 12, um, where he selects uh, two wives uh, from a uh, Sears catalog. No, noise. <clears throat> um but all, all this like gr- growing up stuff is is kind of less important to uh, the plot and just more more I think it's more flavor for us for well, actually not not just for us but like people who aren't aware of the Chinese em- Empire um, and the emperor and, and that title um, is both just kind of showing you how like secluded and uh, cut off from the world that palace has always been. I mean, there's a reason why it's called the Forbidden City. And just kind of giving us that flavor, uh, universe building there. Um, but the real conflict starts when the uh, uh, when there's a when there are wars going on in China. Um, you know, it's he gets expelled from the palace and exiled uh, when there's a uh, rising up of I think it's Chiang Kai-shek, um, and then kind of as a expat living in uh, Tianxin, Tianxin, I don't know really how to say it, um, cooperates with the Japanese government, and the, the Japanese kind of manipulate him to form an independent state of Manchuria. When the Japanese come, um, there's more turmoil during the uh, the Chinese-Japanese war that, that follows, um, and eventually he gets uh, captured by the uh, the Chinese government who defeats the, the Japanese. Um, and that kind of happens uh, lockstep with when, uh, you know, America enters the Pacific Theater and kind of demoralizes and destabilize, destabilizes the Japanese military um, by, you know, the bombings on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Um, so underneath, uh, you know, Mao Zedong's uh, ruler... Or leadership, they kind of imprison anyone who had any part in the forming of the independent Man- Manchurian state, and then the uh, the emperor Puyi is kind of writing his life story, um, and kind of try- like not really giving up any other like political uh, uh, c- compatriots, but just kind of telling his life story about how like complicated the the political situation was, while telling stories about you know his wives and kind of how they left him and just the, uh, you know, the, the, the power struggle that happened inside the palace and outside the palace. Um, 
you know, the, the movie ends on kind of a a grace note where um, the old uh, warden or the governor of the prison camp, um, who had been kind of interrogating but also kind of helping Pu Yi, I think he probably knows who Pu Yi is. Um, you know, he's reading the book that uh, Robert Johnston, who is the British tutor who's brought into the palace when he's a young boy, that, that Robert Johnston wrote about him. Um, and he sees him, the communists have, have captured him and have him basically paraded through the streets in a dunce cap, uh, and he tries to save the guy's life. Um, you know, pretty, pretty much the only selfless thing he does all, all like, story, um, is trying to save someone else at the expense of his own well-being. Mm-hmm. But... Cool little scene, too, with a little boy. Yeah. Going to sit on the throne. Yeah. The dragon throne. Yeah. At the very end of the movie, it shows him kind of buying a ticket to go see the Forbidden City as a tourist attraction Mm -hmm. when no one's there. And, you know, the little boy who's in charge of making sure no one sits on the throne uh, comes and talks to him. And he he proves to him that he's the the emperor um, and then, like, fades away, dies. I don't know. Fire that kid. Yeah, he was not good at his job. Real bad. He had one job. Yeah. Also, well, I don't know. He might have other jobs too. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he keeps the bathrooms real cleaned up. Nice. Yeah, but not for any more money though. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Um, oh, like <laughs> in a communist country, it'd be dumb to have two jobs. Yeah, <laughs> gonna make the same amount of money. Anyway. <laughs> uh, it was directed by Bernardo Bertolucci, and other than Peter O'Toole playing. Um, Playing uh, Robert Johnston and Joan Chan, I believe, who you'd recognize from Twin Peaks and other films, uh, playing uh, one of the wives. Um, that's pretty much it for like recognizable actors to uh, you and I. But yeah, this this movie was a movie. It was um, definitely a movie. Almost two movies worth of movie. Yeah, in movie. yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're gonna update the gong a little bit. That's now question one. <laughs> Was well, this long? a movie? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so uh, I'm done with the plot synopsis. So normally someone asks, uh, what did you guys think? Having None of us had seen this before, right? No. no. Oh. Yeah. It was super pretty at times. Yeah. I think Brent, or David talked about it in, in pre-show, but I think Brent has always said, like, filming in Northern California is cheating. Yeah. yeah. This definitely was that. I mean, it's one of the most, like, beautiful man-made places on Earth that never allows... I mean, I don't think since then there's been a, a movie released here yeah. widely that was filmed in the Forbidden City. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've learned a lot about that, which was fun. Like the 9,999 rooms thing. Did y'all read about that? No. That's, the Forbidden City has 9,999 rooms because in like Chinese religion, 10,000 rooms is how many rooms there are in heaven. Uh, well, they have 9,998 rooms now that the storeroom has been burned. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I really liked the everything inside the the Forbidden City. Yeah, I really liked that aspect of the movie. I thought um, all the costumes were really colorful and cool and pretty. And, yeah, uh, I love that shot of uh, when he's a little toddler and he's uh, he runs out down the steps and there's that huge yellow balloon. Yeah, that's rising and he goes underneath it. I don't know if it's a balloon. Maybe it's like a just it's like a curtain or something. Curtain, yeah. But, yeah, I, I love the the visuals of the world he was born into. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it sort of, I think it does a really nice job of, like, representing, like, what his life began as. And just, like, how there's, he has nothing to worry about. He just gets to look at the prettiest thing on the in the world all the time. Yeah, I love that he unintentionally selects an advisor, too, during that scene, because, like, you know, he goes out to play with this, like, huge, like, billowing, like, sheet of canvas that's supposed to, like, block the public. But, like, the public is there assembled to, like, see the new emperor on his first day. And he doesn't know and runs out there and, like, everyone's like, oh, shit. And they all, like, drop to their <laughs> knees. And so the little kid's just, like, running around and he stops at a guy because he hears a cricket. Mm-hmm. The guy gives him a cricket. I think that's, that's, that is how a three-year-old would select an advisor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it Famously swept its nominated Academy Awards, nominated for nine and won all nine. But definitely cinematography, art direction, costume seemed like the gimmies there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also really like the music too. Got I didn't David know that, Byrne and Oscar. Yeah, David Byrne. 
an Oscar Ryuchi Sakamoto, I think, was in it. He did music for Babel. Okay. A lot of the Japanese stuff there. I mean, wonder how close David Byrne is to it. He got. I wonder if he only has. Well, I mean, obviously has a Grammy, I'm sure, but mm-hmm. I wonder if he's got any. I could totally see him working on. He has worked on TV shows. I could totally see him working on something on Broadway. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's get it for him. <laughs> yeah, I'll get on that. David, what what, what do you think generally of the movie? Generally, I thought it was uh, uh, it was visually fascinating. And um, like we were, we're saying before the podcast, I think they had the opportunity to film in the Forbidden Kingdom and then figured out the story. Yeah. I know that's not actually true. It's based on a, a, the book and all that stuff. But as far as like the dialogue, the characters, all the stuff that they were going to do, it feels super secondary to the circumstance they were able to film under and the visuals they had in mind. Um, so that stuff is pretty, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to look at that stuff. Yeah. And the rest of it is, I don't think there's a lot of characterization to pin those visuals to. Um, I saw this uh, when we initially assigned it, and I'm just having trouble remembering anything but uh, just some of the visual scenes. Yeah. I'm having trouble remembering characters' motivations and everything, and I don't think that's a me problem. No, no, it's definitely... A, it, I, I agree. I think that's definitely a the, the film's problem. It is It is definitely a tone piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're... I think when he's seven, you kind of get the whole gist of all the scenes being shot in the palace when he tries to, like, run out and run out into the streets, like, meet the people. Mm-hmm. And... They lock the door, and he kills his rat by throwing it against the door, like, mm-hmm. frustrated. It's like, that's pretty much it. Is It's all about his imprisonment, and he's a prisoner there, and it's about him coming to terms with his, uh, you know, the, the weird dichotomy of being the most powerful person, supposedly, in the country, but then reconciling that with, like, well, the country's really only this, like, square mile, but we all say it's China. I think the movie could have been uniquely posed to make something interesting about identity. Mm-hmm. So he was taking it away from his family and put in this place where he is, I guess, not like anybody else in the history other than previous emperors. And then war, the world wars happen and he is, you know, uh, divorced from his little magical kingdom. And, like, who is he after that? Is he a puppet emperor? Is he a collaborator? Is he a conspirer? All that stuff. But again, um, not to uh, kick someone when they're down, John Lone. <laughs> you haven't had a lot of credits. Yeah. A lot, yeah. Of, lot of uh, legitimate credits lately, but I just don't think he can really pull off the struggling with identity very well. Yeah, I don't know if the I don't know if the movie... So I think that's the closest this movie gets to a theme, which is the... I mean, watching him have absolute, like, complete reliance on other people for literally everything. Yeah. Um, even wiping his own butt. Yeah. Um, Leaving the water on. Yeah. That, like, I can see that they're trying to go for how, how that makes you kind of inhuman, in mm-hmm. a way. Like, you kind of can't be a normal human, and, and if you're treated that way by others... Um, and I think you get a little bit of his, like, the way you can be kind of cruel to people then. Uh, you get a little bit of that with the drinking of the ink. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, but apparently the real Puni was, was even more cruel than this movie depicted, mm-hmm. just for the same reasons, which is just like, he just, everybody else is a pawn. I mean, he didn't yeah, know yeah. any, he was never taught that these people's lives had any worth. Yeah. Because they don't in his world. He was a god, and these people are kept at arm's length. Yeah, I mean, you kind of you kind of see how much power he has when he uh, when they let his brother come and visit, and he's like, the brother is like, you should come with us and play with me and my sisters, and we'll have a great time. He's like, well, I know a game. Watch this, and just like sprints around the courtyard and makes the cohort like chase them, and then run in like a big circle because they like have to follow him in that order, or yeah. else I don't know. They killed themselves. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was weird. I was saying, like, <coughs> like what would y'all say the theme of, like, Forrest Gump is? It's kind of a passive character who has shit kind of happen to him. 
Yeah. Like, I don't know if that movie has a theme other than it's like, here's a story. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, because he doesn't set out to really do anything. Like, that character doesn't. This character's just so passive that, like, comparing it to, in my head, was always compared to, like, Lawrence of Arabia or Gandhi. Something like that. These, like, world leader biopics. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That you saw this and it was like, oh, this guy doesn't. It is just a story about him. Like, and he doesn't do shit. Yeah. It just shit just happens to him. And he doesn't know how to react because he's not, like, not not a human, but you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't have those, like, human personality traits. Right. Most people uniquely, pl- like, uh, placed in history so that he saw a lot of right. change, but he's not an agent of that change. At all. Right. Yeah. I think that was a good question, and I don't want to veer off this subject too much, but I, I think I would guess that the theme of Forrest Gump is the beauty of looking at things simply. Yeah. Maybe. Like, finding, like, the simplicity of, of how he views different everything everything Mm -hmm. football war yeah yeah the movie gives him everything (laughs) (laughs) he's he's pretty consistent and he's certainly a character you love in the movie so right I would say there's beauty in it at least in him but I don't know like being from the south and I think almost all people that are listening to this podcast are right now but Forrest Gump did make me feel kind of bad even at like age 15 or whatever or 10 I was like Oh, we're just like looking at this guy who's mentally handicapped that everybody's just going like, oh, the whole movie. <laughs> it's like, is that good? Do we want to do that to people who are mentally challenged? Like, God oh, bless his heart. He don't know no better. Um, but anyway, this movie felt weird compared to movies like that where it's like, I don't know what I'm like, other than like reading the Wikipedia page, that was just as interesting as this movie was if it wasn't filmed where it was. Yeah. You know? Well, and I think that that's not intentional, but that's a byproduct of kind of the how production worked for this movie. Yeah, where you know the the fairly newly formed Chinese film board was pitched two movies, and they were like, "So we've got two ideas. Like we've got we want to shoot a movie in China, like welcoming you to you know like like the modern filming world in like 1985, whenever they started production on this." Um, so we've got this one, which is like a French film, and then we've got this one, which is about uh, you know the last emperor in China. And I think that they probably jumped at the opportunity to make a a spectacle of it. Um, you know, Bertolucci has said in interviews that like trying to get local Chinese directors to like help with this when they would step foot in the Forbidden City, they like would have a truly shocked attitude about like being able to be there and having this like unprecedented access. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that the People's Republic of China allowed this movie as the one to be made. A movie that kind of I mean, especially like when they shaved off some of the bad shit that Puyi had done. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I still think it's pretty kind to China and for the People's Republic. Like you know, it, I think that, that that it paints a general like war is bad and and you know there are casualties in conquest. Um, really, only painting the Japanese as like true like capital V villains. Um, but yeah, it's I mean knowing what we know now and the extent of like the voracious censorship that mm-hmm. they employ, I don't think this movie would be made. But. It it seems pretty kind to China. I mean, you get a couple couple pro communist lines when they're talking about you know the student rebellion, um, like before the Chiang Kai Shek rising uprising, um, where Puyi says like, "Well, I'm mad for them. Like I'm mad too." Um, right. So well, just at the time, I guess too. Like now we're kind of overly like all communist or evil thing that right. doesn't really exist anymore. But in 1980. Five and six. I mean, it was full on. You know, yeah. They're all evil. They're over there torturing people. Like everybody, we just assumed. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, and they also. I think. I think it's also probably pretty important for this movie getting made that there's nothing really cruel happening at the prison camp. That it's pretty. Yeah, probably not super realistic. <laughs> no, I mean, th- this is supposedly every person who was involved with the organization of the Manchurian state and cooperated with the Japanese. And this is, like, in light of the rape of Nanking, which happened 
as like a premeditating event to like this prison camp and everyone's just like all of the heads of the Manchurian state are in one cell and they're just like hey we do study breaks and we've got rules here like no talking and you better behave and like that's like as harsh as this prison gets other than the interrogator yelling too loud and then being told hey don't yell too loud at this guy <laughs> right so I don't, I don't know it's not here or there but I think that that that, that kind of sterilizes any uh, ability for the character to have an active role because yeah. any active role he has would be counter to the cooperation of the now People's Republic of China sure. depicting its like history. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's kind of what saved the movie for me a little bit is that I got to think about that the whole time I was watching. Yeah. Which made it more fun to watch than if I didn't. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, there's there's lots of movies that I watch academically that are like, oh, this is important for, for film history or like I need to see this because this actor's best performance is in this and it's kind of a, a, a showcase of talent. And then there's this movie, which I really watch more as like a, like, here's a take on like a historical event that mm-hmm. I shamefully know like almost nothing about. And right, right. it's like a, a, a cool lens to a, to somebody's depiction of this period in history. So that that's what kept me interested, which is why I thought also everything inside the Forbidden City is pretty good and like compelling. And then to me, everything that's going on in the camp is really good. Yeah, I like the like, camp too. From exile to arrest, it's really fucking boring. Yeah, because the movie really dragged through. It's like there was like forty minutes right there. When Puyi decides he's going to be an international playboy, yeah, <laughs> it's like all right. And his wife decides she's going to eat all the flowers in Manchuria. <laughs> um, but it's 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 like if 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 one of the Game of Thrones spinoffs was all about like Tommen's monarchy and like King Tommen and his rule. When it's like, oh, well, Tommen pretty much like does nothing. He was born here, he became king, he did nothing, and then he's not king anymore. He's upset that he can't do anything, yeah. and then he decides to ultimately not do anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah. So, yeah, the the, the stuff where, where they're in Manchuria and in Japan and, like, the, the flapper stuff, and even his romance with his two wives outside of the country, um, you know, it makes a brief political statement about, like, the opium addiction and the... Uh, Kind of the the British sphere of influence, but it blames the Japanese, which I thought was weird. But we don't like each other. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the, the Maybe op- that was one of the stipulations. <laughs> yeah. Now we know. <laughs> uh, I was reading on Wikipedia. Apparently, when they aired this movie in Japan, they cut the any reference to the rape of Dan King mm-hmm. uh, from the movie, Uh-oh. which must have made it made the uh, the the villainous uh, Japanese characters in the movie seem like. Strange, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Puyi really only has agency, and and I think like two major scenes. Um, the first of which is when he initially denies uh, signing the paperwork, declaring the new prime minister, mm-hmm. um, where he is ultimately forced to do it because they plan on embarrassing him with the. Uh, with proof that the Empress has adultered and is, he will sire a bastard. Um, and then the other one is when he tries to intervene, uh, and free the, uh, the, the prison governor and is ultimately ineffective at that as well. Ineffective at that as well. Yeah. So. Well, you like just learned how to tie his shoes. You can't expect him <laughs> to figure out how to do anything really helpful. Yeah. I mean, we never actually, that's, I think that's probably my, my favorite line is when he's in the garden and, uh, and the, the guy comes to him and, and Pui is like, you're just trying to use me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I refused, like I won't do that. And the prison guard says like, is that so bad to be useful to someone? Like, is that really so bad? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this, uh, how many, uh, Bernardo Bertolucci movies have you seen? This is my second. I saw The Squeaker as well. Um, no, Recording uh, with dogs is fun. The, uh, um, I've seen The Conformist, which I like better than this. Um, it is the only one I've seen. And I, I've, I've definitely missed out on, there's two more. Bertolucci movies that are uh, considered greats, and those are, I think, 1900, which is too daunting to ever embark on. It's like four and a half hours. Whoa. And, uh, 
Last Tango in Paris is a famous one. That's yeah. the other one that that is. I've seen a lot of praise for. Um, yeah, this is the first I've seen. No, the nope. Dreamers. Yeah, I saw the Dreamers. That yeah. movie is fucking weird. Anyone seen Little Buddha? With <laughs> Keanu Reeves as a see the Dalai Lama. I have not. Yeah, he's Siddhartha. Interesting. But I was just curious. Uh, yeah, I don't think I've seen any. How about uh, Peter O'Toole for you? How did he do? How did how do you how did he do a lot for you in this movie? Did he? Uh, a curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> he seems pretty good in the movie, but he's he's nowhere near some of the best Peter O'Toole out there. Right. Yeah, I like him. I think I like more of what his character does for this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He seems to inject some life into this, and I really hate thinking that, because it's like, it sounds like, finally the white guy showed up, <laughs> but... He could have been like a Ken Watanabe type. As He's just a tether to humanity for this mm-hmm. guy who's just off in the clouds for his entire life. Yeah, he has an interesting role in it, because, like... Everything is, you know, by the book. You know, the emperor is born with a jade spoon in his mouth and doesn't have to do anything for himself. And everyone around him caters to his every move. They even smell his shit as soon as he makes it to see if they need to change his diet. And then Peter O'Toole shows up, starts breaking rules, and everyone's cool with it. Yeah. But I think, like, that has to happen for the for the plot to be, like, interesting. Yeah. Because the only two people who are defiant at all of this tradition are Peter O'Toole and Puyi. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a clear kinship that they have there, which which works well. Um, his teeth are nasty. He, uh, I like that, you know, Peter O'Toole famously, like, nominated for a bunch of Oscars, never winning. Um... But his last two, he lost to Ben Kingsley for Gandhi and then Forrest Whitaker for the last day of Scotland. Pretty much like playing other biopic people. Yeah. But I like, my favorite one is that after being nominated five times, he was nominated for um, uh, the ruling class in 1972, which was the year that Marlon Brando won. <laughs> the Marlon Brando was like, pass. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like, God damn it. He was like, I'll take it. <laughs> Um, is there is there anything else in here that you um, uh, any other performances that you guys liked, appreciated, or thought were um, exemplary? I know that we kind of talked pre-show that the acting in this is not terrific. Um, it's it might be as a result of the film seemingly forced in English natively. Yeah. Uh, for a lot of actors, who it is clear that English is not their first language. Um, Maybe some some uh, some performances here where the lines being read maybe being read phonetically as opposed to with any understanding of inflection and tone. I think, with the exception to a couple people, everybody's either huge to blow through this language barrier or so subtle it doesn't register because of the language barrier. Yeah, I guess that's my my uh, template I'm putting on it, but it's yeah, it's hard to find anybody else for me at least. Yeah, yeah, I. I, I was I was confused by the uh, the villainess, the Japanese Amelia Earhart, oh, yeah. uh, super spy who hooks. I'm a spy. I don't care. Knows it. Who no. hooks the Empress on opium, like eventually leading to the estrangement of uh, Puyi and Wan Rang. I think her name is and seduces her and seduces her, or just like, hey, I saw you eat those flowers. Maybe your toes taste better now. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't. <laughs> a bunch of stinky bitches eating each other's toes. I didn't. <laughs> but I was I was confused by by her her performance and her role in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> just general confusion. She's like a female snidely whiplash in the movie. <laughs> if she had a mustache, she would twirl it and just like, yeah. hey, give me them toes. This podcast is going to age well. (laughs) Japan's whole espionage program is to consolidate toes. (laughs) toes. Do you guys have any... I really hope that's not the next new movement. Of like, stop making fun of people who suck toes. (laughs) We should... Hashtag hashtag me toe. We should go look up all histories of people making fun of of toe suckers. (laughs) Um, but <laughs> we're in trouble. How dare we kink shame like this? 
It says that the, the, it says that, that actress Maggie Han is best known for her role uh, Yoshiko Kawashima in The Last Emperor and Cheryl the Lawyer in, Se- in Seinfeld. Oh, weird. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to say? In sitcom. <laughs> it's like, damn, somebody already... <laughs> you cannot start that. Right <laughs> it's not introduced to the podcast listeners to that. The... Uh, I gotta say, this is not my favorite movie from the late 80s about a uh, young pampered royal having to learn what the real world is like, because that would be coming to America. (laughs) Which came out the next year. I prefer that movie to this one. It's a retelling. Yes. (laughs) Um, So, we're not doing the full gauntlet here, um, but I feel like... We could probably move on from this movie and have our 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 B discussion, but do we want to just kind of do the vote real quick, get it out of the way? If we would have done a full talk of fame for this, I think unsurprisingly, it's probably going to be an O four. I don't want to speak for everybody, but I'm definitely a no for that. No, I'm a no. It's a curiosity that this this film one and it's interesting, but I don't think there's much to it. It's a nice movie. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Nice people. I'm, I'm glad that I crossed it off. I'm never going to watch it again. I wouldn't recommend it. Not oh because God. it's not because it's bad. Can you imagine though? It's like let's rewatch the Last Emperor tonight. That's what we'll do with our Saturday. I just looked it up. Uh, 1900 is 317 minutes long. That's so long. Oh my God! I'm <laughs> Sorry, doing that math. Editor. Yeah. I was wrong about it being four hours. <laughs> it's five. I only I've only seen one movie that was that long and it was I rented the, the the two volumes from Blockbuster way back in the day and it's all about like the romance of the three kingdoms era in China um, and it was way too long <laughs> yeah um, but yeah it would be a no also um, it's it is interesting and I, and I read a couple articles about how how much of a surprise this was that it won um, best picture at the Academy I wonder if it did win because it was kind of just a marvel, both like technically and just like opportunistically, that th- they wouldn't get a chance. And even just for the the burgeoning uh, like film industry and the partnership with working with Chinese filmmakers was an important thing for the Academy, and that, that this level of access was granted. Maybe uh, like King at Return of the King winning. It's like, can you believe these visuals? And they got to film in Mordor. <laughs> <laughs> they finally allowed in Mordor. Yeah. But so, uh, <laughs> it, it's also kind of a weird year for the Academy for Best Picture. You've got this being nominated for Best Picture, and you have something that is rare for Best Picture nominees. You have two. You have one pretty much straight comedy, and one. <coughs> uh, like considered comedy from uh, Moonstruck and Broadcast News. Mm-hmm. Um, of the other movies that were nominated, would you guys have picked something other than The Last Emperor? What else was nominated? So there's those two. Just, would anyone like knee jerk pick those? Um, I'm I haven't seen Broadcast News, so that's a that's a blind spot for me. But probably not pick Moonstruck over this. I, they're both... I mean, Moonstruck is a nice movie, too. It's fine. Yeah. But I guess I appreciate the grand scale of this a little more. Um, even though Moonstruck is a movie I'd probably more happily rewatch. The result, it was also nominated against Fatal Attraction and Hope and Glory. I haven't seen Hope and Glory. Fatal Attraction seems like such an odd Best Picture nominee in that it's just a... It's just a thriller. You yeah. Know? It's just... It's a... The well, kind of well movie, done, but. yeah, it is. It is very well done, but it's definitely not the type of movie that typically gets a lot of. Yeah, I mean, this this looks like a strange year for the Academy as a whole. I mean, most of these movies aren't really discussed. We've talked about this this year in the Academy before, having discussed Good Morning Vietnam previously mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast as homework. But you've got like Jack Nicholson got nominated for uh, his performance in Ironweed, which is like a strange little movie that, you know, a ton of people haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, not that that's, you know, rare for the Academy to nominate movies that people don't, you know, see in, in the masses, but, like, Michael Douglas wins Best Actor for Wall Street. Yeah. Like we were talking, uh, uh, Kubrick's uh, Vietnam movie. 
Full Metal Jacket. Yes. There it is. There it is. Finally came to me. Uh, came out in 87, and I'm not the biggest Full Metal Jacket fan, but i probably vote for that over over uh, The Last Emperor. I would certainly vote for The Untouchables. I know it's just a personal favorite, but... Yeah. But in, in other categories, also, for Best Screenplay, there's The Last Emperor is up against The Dead, Fatal Attraction, uh, My Life is a Dog, and Full Metal Jacket. My Life is a Dog's weird, like, foreign film. I've never seen it, but I've read some about it. Swedish, I think. You got nominated for Best Director, too, that year. Lassie Hallstrom. Yeah. Yeah. Who did, like, Cider House Rules and stuff later yeah. on. Cider uh, House Rules! Rules. Henderson's won an Oscar. I did not know that. For Best Makeup. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> what did? Harry and the Hendersons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've, like, it's... It's interesting the categories where they won because I think that like in there you've got like hey that could have won and no one would be surprised and actually people would be more surprised that this beat it like for original score even though the score in Last Emperor is great and it's David Byrne and uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto um, you've got uh, Empire of the Sun whose score was done by John Williams The Untouchables Ennio Morricone that um, Untouchable score is amazing I love it yeah like for best sound there you've got you know the same but you've also got Lethal Weapon and Robocop. Not that those are like, but from our understanding of what a best sound category could include, mm-hmm. Robocop also makes it into best editing. Yeah, and lost to like a four-hour plotting movie, The <laughs> Last Emperor. So this one, best sound mixing. It was just called best sound, then it was just one category yeah. that's now called mixing. It's yeah. mixing and editing are two separate ones now. Um, yeah, I did not notice the sound mix in this at all. Really? No, I mean I think yeah. The, there was a lot of like traditional Chinese in- instrumentation, like for diegetic sound that I thought was really neat. Mm-hmm. I was laser focused on that whenever it was happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean it's. I, I I don't think that it was particularly exemplary. I'm not just trying to shit on this movie, right? But like for best cinematography, you also have Empire of the Sun, which is like supposedly a beautifully shot movie. Um, whereas I think that this movie makes its bones in the cinematography category, um, and if it were released today against, you know, with our understanding of the Oscars and how they're awarded, would probably be its one takeaway, um, is a cinematography medal, but... Maybe production, or a director, just for the entire, um, the entire feat of it. Yeah, and costume design. Yeah. Um, probably... I guess, what would you say for production design? I guess a lot of that stuff is just there, but you get credit for that for production Nobody design, else is right? there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so but not just looking at that year of the Academy Awards, but I want to talk about uh, kind of um, broadcast news and Moonstruck's presence in here and just kind of the Academy's uh, kind of wall against nominating or awarding Best Picture to comedies. Um, you know, do you guys think it's a problem? Do you guys, like, like, do you think that there is an argument to be made that maybe comedies don't, or shouldn't hang with Best Picture nominees, and sh- there should be, like, a Golden Globe-style split, where something that is the best drama is a different animal than something that is the best comedy, or musical? I, I like, I would like more nominees, but... In uh, practice, I, I don't like that at the Globes. Yeah. It makes one seem like the... I guess the main award is the best drama, you know, mm-hmm. at the Globes, and the comedy one can be just kind of funny with their winners sometimes. No, no pun intended with best comedy. Yeah. Um, yeah. To differentiate into its own category, it would probably ghettoize um, comedies, and I just think that... The Academy just does a really poor job of, like, a movie has to be serious to be good, but it just says best picture, and I think to make a great comedy that has, I don't know, weight to it, or has, you know, good artistic merit, is almost to do twice as good as a drama. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that, that the uh, actors, like, comedy actors and dramatic actors have, have talked about how... Um, performing in a comedy is so much harder um, than it is just acting in a straight drama. And there's just like, like not even X, but like a Y factor that is involved in putting up a, a strong comedic performance because it has to be so like 
you know, on point on the nose and the writing has to be so good, but you can act outside of a script and drama and do a sufficient job for storytelling purposes. Like you don't have to make the tears land, but in a comedy you have to make like the jokes hit and land. What I've heard too from people behind the camera, I mean the interview I heard with Jordan Peele after Get Out came out was that comedy is way easier in that respect though for people on the other side of the camera. And Jordan Peele's thing was like once you find out what's funny, yeah, then it's easy. You just have to recreate that every time, which is not that hard because now you know what, you know, you got famous doing a thing you do, so just keep doing that. Funny is funny, you know what I mean? And yeah. But I do think it's easier to be recognized as a funny movie, but to be recognized as a good movie, you got to do that, and it's kind of, at the same time you're making characters meaningful and connect with people, you also have to make people laugh, which is such a subjective thing. Yeah, and I think what you, what you have in the Academy Awards... And comedies. I think Annie Hall is probably the straightest comedy that has won Best Picture. Um, there's just not a lot of like drama in that film. Um, but the ones you had before that I would call comedies are like it happened one night, which is like the fifth or sixth movie to win Best Picture, 1935. It, I mean, it's a rom com, like a Harry Met Sally drama moments. Yeah. Then you had like My Fair Lady is a comedy, but like, okay, once you get into the musicals, you you got a couple there, and then like. I always compared like the Sting to kind of like an Ocean's Eleven type movie. You know what I mean? It's got like it's not a drama action film, right? But it's pretty joyless. Like there's there's not there nothing is really played for straight comedy. It's all just like quirky characters acting quirkily, which is kind of how I felt about Ocean's Eleven. Like I never yeah. laughed out loud at Ocean's Eleven. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was just like huh. it was just kind of a movie. Yeah. I'm really hoping that the definition for a a Sting came from the movie The Sting because they have those the, those inner title cards kind of telling you like the name of each chapter and it does the and it like does the scene but that was the most uh, amused I was watching that was whenever one of those would come up and be like this movie's ridiculous yeah I mean looking through this like you know, like David said musicals are weird but some of these movies have funny moments like I probably laughed out loud at Forrest Gump when I watched it, but it's definitely not a comedy. Right. You know what I mean? And I think that's a really tough movie to categorize, too, Forrest Gump. I think the artist is pretty light. With, yeah. With, with just, I think it's more of the opposite, where it's like it has, it's a light movie that has a few moments of seriousness. Um, but it's also not like a, boy, that was hilarious kind of movie. Right. Yeah, like, I think like I got to Birdman finally, and I was like, I mean, there were some hilarious moments in Birdman. I was cackling, yeah, watching Birdman the first time. But it's so dark, it's just so weird and dark. Yeah, and it's not like a dark comedy. It's dark, and there's comedic moments, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, there are funny parts to like Slumdog Millionaire. American mm-hmm. Beauty is technically a comedy, I guess. It, it, more drama than comedy. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> American Beauty is technically a comedy? Yeah, it's a comedy. According to what rules? I don't know. It's like a social, not social, but a satirical I'm curious to see Well, just like Wikipedia hasn't listed as comedy at all, because I I wouldn't. I think it won the Golden Globe for a comedy, not that that's any barometer. I was going to say, that makes me think it's not a comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like, I'm not going to move past it. Amadeus also has comedic moments, the... The yeah, silliness of Mozart's, you know. I think there are other examples of that too. Like, <laughs> yeah, Gimli and Legolas are hilarious in Return of the King. This is the drama film, but yeah, it is funny. It's like, yeah, American Beauty, the comedy, you know, where <laughs> the adulterous wife is crying in her husband's closet at the end of the film because he's been murdered. He also says the remote control car and says, "I roll," <laughs> and everybody guffaws. Shakespeare in Love is a it's a rom com comedic, yeah. Um, Again, rom-coms are hard, because if they have that romantic side, like when Harry Met Sally has moments that make you want to tear up. That's like The Apartment. Yeah. The Apartment won Best Picture. Right. It's a rom-com. Um, but yeah, I mean, I definitely think there should be movies considered that do that. I mean... Moonlight. This, 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 just, feels, this just feels especially bad, because the Academy had nominated two comedies, and then this movie, which is like zero fun. Like, there's not even, like... Like anything here, I mean, I guess like the boy running naked towards his wet nurse to like, you know, still breastfeed at like seven is like kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, I think though, I think with the way voting worked then, 
two, you probably had. It probably hurt that there were two movies like that nominated. Right. Yeah, so, that's probably true. I think the last like laugh out loud mo- movie that really even got a nomination, I feel like, was uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, which in a different year might have had a shot. Maybe I don't know, but that was just such a stacked Oscar season. Yeah, was not- yeah. I mean, you get the animated films too. Like outside of the three heartbreaking scenes and up, the rest of that movie straight up comedy. Right. Yeah. But, like, even even outside of Moonstruck and broadcast... Not broadcast news. Yeah, broadcast news. Um, I mean, honestly, Green Book's probably the most comedic film that's won in a very long time. We don't talk about that movie. Um, <laughs> but, like, man, when we rewatched uh, Good Morning I'll, Vietnam, that movie does, like, the comedic mo- moments and the dramatic mo- moments, like, really fucking well. Yeah. Um, yeah, shit, the end of that, when he finds out his buddy's the one... Mm-hmm. Doing stuff is heartbreaking. Yeah, I mean, you can you can point at other like '80s comedies here, like Beverly Hills Cop Two. You know, I know that that like a lot of people like that better than the original. I don't know why I don't I haven't seen those movies, but um, yeah, but that makes, that's kind of why the whole like comedy thing is kind of a loaded question, which makes it a good question. But like, yeah, Step Brothers or like Anchorman, while they're damn near perfect comedies, no, you know what I mean? Yeah, but like. But why? I mean, because they follow that thing that I think Jordan Peele was talking about, which is just like Adam McKay knows what funny is. Obviously, he's one of the best comedic, like, creative minds out there right now. And he was able just to like, I've got Will Ferrell, I've got John C. Riley, I've got a recipe that equals a perfect comedy, and he doesn't have to take, you know, any chances. He doesn't have to really do anything new. Perfecting a recipe is as impressive of a feat as coming up with something entirely new. Or in the drama category, taking something that is just like a different recipe and building on that and making the same movie. And then finally, like, I mean, Wes Anderson, who, if we call his movies near comedies, is, you know, if, if I could lob a criticism at him, is he makes like the same movies tone wise, just the plot kind of like moves from column A to B to C to D, but all of the actors are basically the same. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, it feels like like I can make you a breakfast you will like. It's yeah. going to be a bowl of Cheerios and a piece of toast. Right. It's going to be good. You're not going to dislike it. But I'd much rather have like Brent or somebody who doesn't cook make like pancakes for the first time. I'd rather eat that. You know what I mean? Okay. Even if it's a, something that's like technically worse on its comparison. You know what I mean? I get what you're saying. At the yeah. same time, I think the recent Academy Awards, they've been doing uh, genre exercises where it's like, um, like this is a great example of a horror movie in Get Out. With right. Like satire in it. Or this is a great coming of age movie like your Lady Birds or Call Me By Your Names. This is a great um, ensemble drama. This is a great war movie. This is a great that kind of movie. You think that there would be more runway for it. This is a great comedy Right. Or this is a great, like, Shape of Water, this is a, I don't know, depending on your feelings, but this is a great dark fantasy or fairy tale movie, and the genre gets awarded there, but we've just forgotten about comedy. Yeah. Like, like the, like the, the ad diversity and stir mentality of, like, Silence of the Lambs won for horror, so now we're done with horror. Now, the Academy doesn't have to recognize horror as the Best Picture winner ever again. Right. Like, that that feels so disingenuous to the purpose of, like, comparing art. You know, it's... You can look at a movie like Last Emperor, which has, like, as few giggles as possible, and, you know, not that I think that Lethal Weapon is a perfect movie, but, like, your perfect action movie somehow can't hang with, you know, the 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 40th drama that is a biopic about a historical figure is like oh that's an Oscar shoe it I'm not offering this as validation but I'm I'm more more explanation like I think it's unfortunate that this is the case but I wonder if comedies don't get their due with the Oscars because there's rarely more layers to them than just the jokes. You sure. Know? Like, it's it's hard to... Like, there are horror movies where you can appreciate... Like, for example, Get Out uh, had the horror, but it also had themes and stuff you could unpack and things you could peel back and 
<laughs> Jordan Peele back and uh, <laughs> and uh, take away from that movie. And it's hard to work that into comedies. I think in some cases, in some cases you can, I guess, but it's it's rarer. I mean, yeah, especially if you're talking about a movie like like Lincoln, and then a movie like Animal House or like Porky's, where like the a comedic movie went down a lane that was kind of puerile and immature, but those aren't really the comedies that people are making anymore. Right. Like, they, they're still being made, but those aren't the ones that are, you know, selling out theaters for, like, four weekends in a row. Yeah, I think, especially with some... I think the comedies I like tell stories that aren't... that don't feel like another vessel to retell the jokes. Right. The ones that I would nominate if I was in charge of the Academy anyway. Because I think what you do, and not to bring him back into it, but, like, Stuck on You versus, like, There's Something About Mary... How in the hell do you distinguish those two movies? Like, they're just different vessels to get the same jokes across. You know, there's nothing new introduced. Mm -hmm. But it's just like, I'll watch this, it's going to be a different story, and I can laugh at it. But if you're comparing, like, it happened one night, and there's something about Mary, like, I don't know, that feels different. Or like like Borat, something that really radicalizes sort of the form. One Brent, like, a comedy film that me and Brent think is, like, a five-star movie, I think, is, like, A Mighty Wind. Where it's like a commentary on something super specific, so you have to write new jokes. You know what I mean? Because the stuck on you jokes don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. But when you're doing that, like gross out comedy, I mean, those two movies are great. I think the Farley Brothers made some fantastic comedies, but like they're doing the same shit every time. It's just that uh, they did Dumb and Dumber, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're basically just that. Yeah, they found their hit formula, and they're just and it works. Yeah. And I mean, like Adam McKay, outside of. You know, Big Short and Vice kind of did the same thing. Like, it's just like I've got the I got I found gold. And, and the, Will Ferrell and John C. Rowley, they're hilarious together. And mm-hmm. why the hell would I fuck with that? And the Big Short also got him his Best Picture nomination. And it's a it has a lot of his comedy in it, but he just had to package it with with you know something that mattered to get the Academy's attention. It's not. I'm not saying it's the exact same tone as as old school or something like that, but yeah, there's no like Steve Carell goes into the board meeting with jizz on his ear or whatever. <laughs> like, I think maybe this is almost a parallel discussion to the Academy discussion. That's like great comedy to show you something new, but like the Academy, like Green Book just won last year. They're not necessarily interested in something new. Um. Well, Especially yeah. the the you know genre examples we have, it's not necessarily brand new, but it's just really good job. Mm-hmm. I think there's a differentiation from like the Fairly stuff, and I'm kind of in the pocket for these kind of movies. But once the Apato movie started, you know, you do have Knocked Up, which has got gross out humor. It's got guffaws aplenty. It's right. not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but it always has a character arc in mind, like a nod towards maturity for its characters. Yeah. Like, yeah. I would have something like that, or Super Bad, or those kind of movies, maybe just get a look for this kind of stuff. It's, it's got those something about merry endings, where it's like, that's sweet. Yeah. You know? and so while I don't know that I would... Well, I certainly think more comedy should be nominated, but I don't know that I would... If I could overcorrect the Oscars in one direction, I don't know that it would be in Best Picture, but I feel like it would be in performance categories. I think comedic performances are hard... And, and like, really good ones are rare, but they're noticeable, and I think I would reward more comedic. The ones they reward now go so far past the line of what they think could be, like, I mean, you get, like, uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, mm-hmm. where it's just, like, so far gone for somebody like him. Like, you know Melissa I mean? McCarthy, was she nominated for Bridesmaids? Yeah. 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 Like, that's... Yeah. And I, and I get that. And so maybe they... They do to an extent, but it's uh, but like that's another good example. Like Melissa McCarthy, like blew up on the scene with Bridesmaids and got an Oscar nomination and was great. And has, I mean, aside from a few movies where she's been great, uh, has pretty much recreated that character eight more times. Since yeah, then. and it hasn't done anything different. The movie was better, maybe than was like Life of the Party or something. Mm-hmm. But like, what is she doing different? 
from Bridesmaids to those shitty movies to like I Spy, which is pretty good, but like how do you she's just fallen and she's a great comedic actress. So, she burst on the scene, she got a nomination and now she's kind of forgotten unless she's doing something like Can You Ever Forgive Me? So is so is is the problem more one like you know, the it's like the the soccer versus basketball, the, the team sport versus individual impact, where like on the one hand you've got a great drama is made by a uh, an ensemble of creatives from the director to the writer to yes the actors but also like everything the cinematography which helps impart that mood but a great comedy can truly be carried by one person doing their comedic take and maybe the academy doesn't recognize that uh, individualism outside of the kind of team activity of movie making maybe Maybe doesn't recognize it in a lead performance. Like what we're talking about as examples here are supporting, scene stealing like takes. The truest definition of the word supporting too. Yeah, in those scenario, those two examples. Yeah, oftentimes in drama, the, the the dramas that have like lots of comedic moments, it's normally by a foil supporting actor or actress who is your comedic relief. Um, but I think that the, that's a possibility. But could it also be a possibility, like TJ was saying, but that. Comedy is just kind of evolving slower, but also more monumentally every time. Where, like, the comedies of the 30s and 40s today are, like, ridiculous to think that anyone would laugh at the things that happen at them. Not, you know, for everyone and not, you know, to overgeneralize. But, like, there is a different understanding of humor and comedy in the 30s and 40s, which evolved in the 50s and 60s, 70s. You know, you you get you start getting your gross out humor in the seventies, and the people in, inspired by that gross out humor with in the nineties again, and so with like a drama where kind of the start and finish of evolution of a movie is from the time that the director says action the first time to when they rap, where there's no evolution necessary to tell this one bestokes, bespoke story, whereas comedy has to build on the uh, I get to use it, uh, builds upon the zeitgeist of whatever is deemed appropriate to joke about or laugh about, or, you know, for some of the better comedy in our, in our experience, make light of things that aren't appropriate to, to joke about. Like, does it have to have, is it because it requires a cultural shift? And so it changes so often. So then we get the problem where the Academy is reticent to recognize a nascent industry like Silence of the Lambs, that is kind of rises above the crowd, but is like the one example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think about like uh, so. I was thinking about like Mad Max Fury Fury Road, yeah, and how like that is just that is a straight action movie, like it is action packed, and it got a nomination, and I think it's a very deserved nomination. I think that's probably a lot of people's number one movie of the year. Uh, mine, mine, and. Uh, and I was wondering, like, so, like, because I was trying to compare comedies to dramas. And dramas, like I said, have, uh, like I was talking about earlier, they have, uh, they they can make you see life in a different way. So, like, the best ones can. They can, they have themes and, and uh, you know, emotional performances and whatnot. And action movies don't lend themselves to that as much. Comedies don't lend themselves to that sort of, like, like... I see life in a new way kind of thing. Um, And I wonder if the other problem... And, you know, sci-fi doesn't always do the same thing either. But uh, I wonder if maybe sci-fi and action have a bit of an edge because they can also add to the visual form more than comedies can. Like, you've got that... Like, Mad Max was a thrilling visual feast on the screen. And then... You know, great sci-fi movie, Blade Runner 2049, the same way, was, was, uh, and I'm certainly not saying those movies don't have themes as well, but right, it's tough to find comedies that can push forward the medium without, uh, beyond their genre, I guess. It's hard to find comedies that, that, I'm saying? Yeah, I still think we're like on the straight comedy tip, though, it's so hard. Because, right. like, like, if you ask me, like, out of the, like, major, like, four or five genres, like, drama, horror, comedy, whatever, like, what is Birdman? It's gotta be a comedy. You know what I mean? In my mind. 
I'm not saying it's got to be like, y'all are wrong if you don't say like, I don't know how to say anything else other than it's a comedy. Right. But, like, what is The Martian? Right? I think that's also... I mean, and then those, I'm saying The Martian's sci-fi. Out of the, you know, action sci-fi. Sci-fi slash fantasy. Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, like, I don't like, what's Fellowship? Comedy. Yeah. (laughs) Because, I mean, there's action in the last... 30 minutes of fellowship but not really leading up to that you know what I mean yeah mm-hmm. so I don't know it's, yeah. it's hard and I mean I think the more that movies get away from trying to be one of those true like blockbuster title owls you know what I mean yeah the more interesting the movie can get yeah like, like a Birdman where it's like fuck I don't know Chris can say it's a drama and I can say it's a comedy and I can totally see both sides I mean, the thing that's the recent success and future of comedies to get in here is they kind of have to wear the clothes of a different genre, genre, and then just inject as much comedic elements, comedic payoff into a genre that they can Trojan horse and Trojan horse into the <laughs> Yeah. That being said, I mean, I feel like the com the Oscars always have like four to five slots that it doesn't matter if you're innovative or anything. If you're a drama that's like yep. decent, you can be there. If yeah. you got respected names, you know, uh, in front of or behind the camera, yep. you can get there anyway. Or sometimes, if you just do a really good impression of a person that we all recognize, <laughs> that's enough. Yeah. Looking at you, Darkest Hour. <laughs> that's... No, that movie's good. Or if you make the most popular war movie that year, sometimes that's like, that's a fine job. War's bad. This movie reminded us war's bad. Look at this religious guy who had to fight. Yeah. I want a World War II comedy. And his name was Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, I just wanted, I mean... No, it's good. Well, it's a good talk. It's an interesting conversation. Yeah, I'm hoping, and I mean, it's we, we have more room now that the Academy has expanded and kind of uh, been more fluid with the number of nominees, um, where you kind of do see this, um, you know, add two tablespoons of different into the nomination pool um, in the past few years, like... You know, last year you've got, you know, ostensibly a musical and A Star is Born and, and Bohemian Rhapsody. But they're definitely both dramas, but those are interesting. And you've got, like, the comic book movie, you know, and then some pretty straight ones. The same way with the previous year with Get Out and, like, Lady Bird being in there. Or, David, you said they don't often do coming of age with, like, Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. You know, last year also, I think, I feel like I, I want to be clear that I do definitely think comedies don't get their due. I was just trying to play devil's advocate oh, for sure. as, like, how, how they're reasoning. I think they totally missed the boat. I thought the best picture of last year was a comedy, Paddington 2. It's the funniest movie I saw last year. Or the year before, you have Big Sick, which gets, I guess, screenplay, which is often, like, the token nomination for, the, for comedies. And that one's a pretty original, um... You know, exercising comedy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to talk to you guys about that. About, about comedies, because I felt the opposite of laughter when I watched The Lost Emperor. And didn't really want to, like, take that movie to task yeah. for ten whole questions for a full hour. Um, but... David, have homework? Yeah, I think we're ready for our next assignment. I'm going to go a little lighter. Good. Uh, then shorter four-hour historical That's epic. <laughs> oh gosh, <laughs> I don't know how to exit out of that one. <laughs> Tell us the movie. Um, so it is a comedy. Cool. <laughs> um, it's one I think all of us have seen a lot. Fun. <laughs> I think it's probably an auto in almost. So maybe we can talk about the director who's who comes up a ton. Um, or we can, uh, and we can also cross something off in my list of in the last decade. I've seen it in a little bit at least, um, and it's it's going to be fun and light. And it's uh, Scott Pilgrim. Oh, nice! Oh, cool! Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, we we may even have some recent watches among us, but uh, cool. I want something fun, and maybe we can talk career of uh, Edgar Wright. You know, it comes up in best movies of the decade, or comes up we're talking about a. An entire director's oeuvre, or you know the genre stuff that comes up. I'm always up for a rewatch of Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, and we can talk about video game movies too. <laughs> I think we did that once, and it was Sonic the Smashmog. Yeah, not too many recent entries to add to that list that are decent. Just but, wait. Yeah, I just want to do something fun. Cool. Well, that was Talking Talk. 
podcast for the media by us. Uh, you can check out our Facebook groups, uh, um, games by us, movies by us, TV by us. If you, uh, you want to follow along and keep up with our homework, on what streaming service would you watch, Scott Pilgrim? Netflix. Netflix. All right. And <laughs> Netflix. Uh, so fi- find our tab in Netflix. Go to netflix.com slash the media by us. <laughs> and then when it has a redirect, delete the media by us part and then search for Scott Pilgrim and you found our page. <laughs> Couldn't be easier. <laughs> <laughs> now, our page should be on there. Just uh, email Netflix and ask them why we're, why we're not represented on there. Also email uh, Spotify. Uh, <laughs> yes, please. Uh, CC Spotify on that email. <laughs> Unfortunately, no one's listening at this point anyway. They've already scrolled down and well, deleted the If podcast. people want to email us... Yeah, they could do that. If they want to tweet with us, they can do that. They know what to do. And, uh... Give us a rating. Please subscribe. Thank you, Willow Walkers. Thank you. Walkers. Thank you, Burifa. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. And thank you, listeners. Bye-bye. Good night, and good luck. We're in the end cave now. <laughs> Kicking rocks... Down old dusty roads Small town slowpokes Long time ago Kicking out records Of all the things that I know All the things